Hello and welcome to another Centre for Independent Studies webinar. I'm Monica Wilkie, a policy analyst at the CIS. Today, I am delighted to welcome back former CIS guest, host of the Rubin Report, and now author of Don't Burn This Book, Thinking in the Age of Unreason. He also occasionally tweets from the Dago Bar system. Dave Rubin, welcome back to the CIS. Monica, it's good to be with you. I shouldn't tell people that I'm on Dago Bar these days because you know the mobs are always looking to take people out and burn down their houses and everything else. So I should probably delete that, but uh, all right, good to know. You could just hide somewhere else in the galaxy and that'll be fine. (laughs) Exactly, like all the other liberals that are scattered throughout the galaxy right now. Yes, that is our plan. (laughs) So uh, today, Dave and I are going to have a wide-ranging discussion about cancel culture, free speech, and all things woke. First of all, Dave, I want to ask, can you just summarise the thesis of your new book and also tell us what compelled you to write it? Yeah, well, the thesis is pretty simple. When I started writing the book, I was originally going to write a book called Why I Left the Left, which is a phrase that has sort of been attached to me. I did a very popular PragerU video about four years ago called Why I Left the Left. Most people know about my political evolution from a progressive to a classical liberal or libertarian, whatever you want to call us crazy people uh, over here. Uh, And the book really is not just my story on what it was like to leave the left, but really um, about what my classical liberal beliefs are, how I came to believe them, and why I think they're the right ideas for the most pluralistic free society that any of us would want to live in. Uh, And what comes along with that, of course, is that you're going to have to be brave and stand up to a mob and you're going to have to deal with people attacking you and turning on you and saying all sorts of awful things. And really, at the end, it's not to convince anyone that I'm right about every specific topic. I, I lay out what I believe about taxes, about abortion, about foreign policy, about every issue that there is. I'm not trying to convince you, the reader, that I'm right about every single one. I'm trying to show you that I've thought about these issues seriously, and I believe that the classical liberal lens is the best way to look at these issues. But if you come to a different conclusion than I do, well, that's great. And as long as we're not trying to kill each other, then I want to live in the same society as you. So in a way, does this book sort of serve two purposes in that you're explaining your journey of why you left the left, some of your philosophical beliefs, but you're also trying to open up a conversation and and showing people, look, this is how we can debate. This is what free speech looks like. Yeah, well, I want to nudge people out of the political closet. I, I actually think that the politically closeted is probably the biggest underserved political group, whether we're talking about an American perspective or a British perspective or an Australian perspective. There are people that live in the freest societies in the history of the world, as we do right now, despite the struggles that we're all having for different reasons and coronavirus and everything else. We live in incredibly free societies that our ancestors and our forefathers would look at and say, this is just incredible. These these extraordinary freedoms that you have that you take for granted and you're afraid to say what you think in these free societies, that's actually crazy. So I want people to think about the issues seriously. Uh, As I said before, I want, I think that the classically liberal lens of individual rights and limited government, I think that's the best lens to look 
through the looking glass and, and figure out what you think about the specific issues. Um, but I want you to think about those issues and then start speaking up because I think what's happening, especially we live in this time of, of the woke mob and cancel culture and everything else, that mob preys on the fact that good people don't speak up. And I guarantee that every single person that's listening to this is not speaking up fully, whether it's at home or at work or wherever it might be. They're not fully telling people what they think because they're afraid they're gonna be canceled or attacked or destroyed. And yet, ironically, that is what gives the fuel to the people that will cancel you in the first place. Your silence is what enables them to keep encroaching on your freedoms. So I want people to speak up. And again, it doesn't mean that you have to agree with me on everything. If you have a different feeling than I do, if you come to a different conclusion, I should say, than I do on taxes, that's just fine. But think about it seriously and then fight for what you believe in. You mentioned the woke mob then and how people aren't speaking up or they're being silenced. Do you think though that we're possibly seeing a slight shift? We, we had not long ago the Harper's Letter where 150 prominent academics, intellectuals, J.K. Rowling, Noam Chomsky spoke out against this. They didn't use the phrase cancel culture, but they talked about the importance of free speech, open debate. We also had recently the viral Barry Weiss resignation letter. Do you think possibly we're at a slight turning point here? You know, I'm a, I'm a glasses half full kind of guy. So I do think it's possible that things may be turning, but I don't know if it's exactly because of those two incidences. So the Harper's letter and the Barry Weiss resignation were very similar in a, in a lot of ways because what they were in essence were liberals saying, oh, we've had enough of, uh, enough of this. Now, ironically, uh, you know, we sat down about two or three years ago, when, last time I was in Australia with Jordan Peterson, and these were the issues that, that Jordan and I and a few other people were discussing quite, quite extensively and talking about how all of this stuff was going to leak out of college campuses, this safe space, trigger warnings, all of these things were going to leak out into the real world. And everyone kept saying, oh, but when it gets out into the real world, uh, you know, it'll go away. These are just a bunch of college kids. And we kept saying, no, this is real. This stuff is being taught. It's being institutionalized. It's, it's entering the world of academia, obviously, but also our media institutions, all of our political institutions, our, our business institutions, our network television institutions, they're all being infected by these bad ideas. So while I'm glad to see the 100 or 150 academics or so uh, come out, you know, what they did also within that was sort of say, ah, but the right is really the problem. There, there was still this twang of, oh, but the right, and they couldn't seem to find one Trump supporter to put on there or really any well-known conservatives. Um, and, you know, Barry Weiss, who wrote the original Intellectual Dark Web article in the New York Times, and who I think is a, is a sort of old school liberal, somewhat within our vein, um, you know, she's been playing a very dangerous game at the New York Times because for years, most of us have known that the New York Times is going down this route. And finally, she got to the point where she decided she had to move on. Um, what I think, unfortunately, though, is that it might be too late that what I think really has to happen here is that if you're an old school liberal, you're a classical liberal, you're a JFK liberal, or just somebody that, that believes the government shouldn't do everything, you're gonna have to do what a lot of the liberals fear the most. And that is create an alliance with conservatives. Uh, create an alliance with the people that maybe have been your political opposites for a long time. That's where you'll be able to find rich discussion and hopefully build new institutions. I don't think the liberals themselves 
have enough of a, a guiding light, let's say, to stop this from within. Um, but we shall see. Now, you just mentioned then when you were talking about university campuses and the media, our institutions, and you kept saying these ideas have leaked out. Just expand on that a little bit. What do you see as the specific ideas that are pernicious or a threat to classical liberalism or liberal thinking? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm glad you asked it because, you know, sometimes we say things like that, these ideas, as if everyone knows what we're talking about. I mean, I would say the number one bad idea that has now uh, permeated throughout society and has sent its tentacles out through almost every part of American society uh, is identity politics. This is the most dangerous set of ideas that we've had to deal with in the last, I don't know, 50 years or so. The idea that we should group each other based on immutable characteristics. You're black, so you must think this. You're white, so you must think this. You're Christian, so you must think this. You're gay, so you must think this. You're Muslim this, Jew this. This is a horrific set of ideas that in many ways is anti-human. You know, the only thing that you should be judged on is your thoughts and actions, right? It's, it's your thoughts first and then what you put into action. So you, Monica, it would be crazy for me to look at you without knowing you. I know you a little bit, so I know some of your thoughts, but it would be crazy for me, for me to just, you know, pass you in the street and say, well, there's, there's a white girl, she's dressed a certain way, and you know, da, 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 so she must think this. But that's what they're selling us. They're telling us if you're black, you must think these things. If you're gay, you must think these things. As if your immutable characteristics somehow to a political ideology. That is deeply dangerous. You know, there, I firmly believe that there are black people who have a plurality of opinion, who might be libertarian and some might be progressive and conservative and everything else. So identity politics, the fact that this has been thrust on us in such a bizarre way, in many ways, it's injecting racism into the system. Our whole national dialogue right now is, is constantly about racism. But I think you could make a strong argument that the United States of America in 2020 is the least racist country in the history of the world. We don't have laws that stop anyone from doing anything based on race. Actually, uh, now you can see the anti-racists, they suddenly are against uh, certain laws that made everybody equal because they want special rights now for certain people. So I think identity politics, when I talk about these bad ideas, collectivism, which falls within that, the idea that we would group together people and based uh, on that, and the idea that the government is the solution to everything. I, I take a more Ronald Reagan approach on this, which is that the government is the problem in almost every instance. What I want is a government that is small enough that when, I, when the guy that I like's in power, he can't do everything I want. But the trade-off is that when the guy that I don't like's in power, he can't take everything from me. The left, the socialist left, the Marxist left, the Bernie Sanders left, whatever you want to call that, they've decided that government is the answer and they will use the power of government to accomplish whatever they want. That, that is a recipe for a disaster. Now, you are just mentioned there about how America's having a conversation about race and racism. And as an outsider who's sitting on the other side of the world, I hear that there's looters or rioters or protesters. It's sort of a, it's a bit of a, a jumble, the messages that are coming out. What, for, from your perspective as someone who's there, what's actually happening at the moment with the Black Lives Matter 
movements and why is it so difficult to get clear information about what's going on? Well, the second part of that question is the tough one. Why is it difficult to get clear information? I mean, our media has absolutely failed us. The New York Times, I mean, read the Barry Weiss letter. The New York Times is an activist organization, a left-wing activist organization, not the New York Times that we think it is. It happens to be printed on the same paper, but it's not the New York Times that we grew up with or that our parents had or our grandparents had. So, and when I say the New York Times, I also mean CNN and most of our mainstream media. They have absolutely failed us to the point that we have very few journalists left. And a journalist is supposed to find truth, not create their own truth. And we have very few of those people left. Every time I say journalists, I have to use air quotes because they're journalists, they're not journalists. Um, as far as what's actually happening right now, well, first off, we have to talk about Black Lives Matter as an organization and an idea. When, people, when the average person, I think, says Black Lives Matter, they, they mean, I think they mean, oh, well, we don't want people to be racist. And everyone agrees with that. There's no one in mainstream political American life that, that is promoting racism, that wants people to be treated differently because of their race or discriminated against because of their race or anything like that. There's nobody. There just isn't. I'm not saying those people don't exist, but I'm saying in mainstream political or media life, they, they simply don't exist. Are there, are there racists that exist? Well, of course there are. I mean, it's a part of the human condition and we should, we should try to counter that with better ideas. But, but in mainstream sense, there, there is no racism in that regard. We also don't have laws that are racist. We don't have laws that say you can't do this because of certain skin color or a certain gender or something else. Obviously, gender is not skin color, but uh, gender is not a race. But we don't have laws that discriminate based on immutable characteristics. Um, then we have to look at the Black Lives Matter organization. And I would welcome anyone watching this to go to their website. They are a Marxist organization. Their leaders are self-proclaimed Marxists. They talk about dis uh, disassembling the nuclear family. Uh, they want to basically upend the entire government of the United States. They believe that capitalism and democracy are bad things. And the fact that these ideas have now been trickled in to the point that if you go to an NBA basketball game this season, when they start up again, it's going to say Black Lives Matter on the court. Now, are they talking about the, organi the Marxist organization? Or are they talking about the general idea that Black Lives Matter matter? Well, I think black lives matter. I think white lives matter. I think police lives matter. I think, I think every human life matters. So it's hard to tell what's going on. What I can tell you is this, there is, there is extreme violence in Portland specifically. We had the Seattle semi-autonomous area. Uh, we're seeing all over in different cities right now where there are these defund the police movements uh, in Chicago and in New York and San Francisco and a bunch of other places, crime is up, murder is up, all of those things. So you're not going to believe this, but when you have a strong police force, actually crime goes down. And it's, it's really unfortunate watching what's happening to our big cities, but I would be remiss if I didn't say that, uh, you know, I think something like 18 out of the 19 uh, biggest cities in the United States that are dealing with these problems, they're all run by progressives, and yet they're all blaming Trump for all their problems. You just nicely laid out then the distinction between Black Lives Matter, the organization, and Black Lives Matter, the sentiment. Either one, whether it's the organization or the sentiment, do you think they have, are there any legitimate claims that you think, okay, maybe there's something we can talk about? I mean, there's a lot they talk about in terms of uh, policing, you know, 
black people are more likely to be arrested for various offences than others. You know, they talk about tearing down various statues, renaming monuments. Is there anything where you think, you know what, I think they have a point? Not really. I mean, if you want to have a conversation about any of those things, if you want to have a conversation about policing and, and what we should do related to police, uh, absolutely, let's have that conversation. If you want to have a conversation about what should we do about some of these monuments to say Confederate leaders, let's have that conversation. But we're not having that conversation. What we're having is violence and destruction. It's not a conversation. If, if Black Lives Matter groups and Antifa groups come in and just tear down monuments and burn down stores and attack people that are just driving down the street. I mean, we've seen several videos of that just today. I mean, just the, it's just an average person driving down the street. Antifa has decided to close the street and then people get hit by a car and then think that it's white supremacists in the cars. It's just regular people who possibly have a kid in the car and they're worried about their lives and they don't know if police are gonna save them. And you have no right to stop someone else's car in the street. But if you want to have a conversation about any of the things that you just mentioned, what should we do about monuments to these people? Should we have a counter monument or a plaque? Should we remove some of these statues and put them in museums? Should we leave them as historical uh, markers? I would be for having all of those conversations. The problem is they've decided the time for conversation is over. They, in, a, in an odd way, what they'll tell you is conversation is violence. Silence is violence. What they're saying now is we're gonna do whatever we want. And by that, they mean burn down the system uh, regardless of what you think. So that, that's what we have to sort of watch out for. That, you know, I think for those of us that are liberty minded, uh, we're generally respectful of other people's opinions. We wanna hear other people's opinions. We wanna sort of map what we think against somebody else. Right now we're dealing with a movement that either wants to destroy what, what good things have been built by the West or make you bow forever in its honor. And I refuse to accept either one of those as possibilities. Don't forget to like this video, subscribe to our channel and hit that notification bell so you can stay up to date with all the CIS content. I'm uh, interested to get your perspective, Dave, particularly from someone who's classical liberal. And as you said before, the government is, uh, is mostly the root of problems and you want them to have a light touch. How does that conflict whether it does conflict with the idea we talk about um, the military coming in and breaking up some of these riots and, and defending people's property. How does that sit with you? Yeah, this is a great question and I think it's deeply, deeply important. And I'll, I'll talk about it, of course, from an American perspective where we have a federalist system here where our states, our 50 states, all have different laws and the beauty of that is if you don't like, if you live in California where I live and your tax too high, you can move to Texas where there's no state income tax. And then if you go to Texas and you say, oh, they don't have enough state income tax, so they're not putting enough towards education, you can move elsewhere. And that's a beautiful system where you can use your foot vote to hopefully find a place that you want to live in. Now, I would prefer strongly, and I believe this is absolutely the classical liberal approach to this, I, I believe that it is the responsibility of the local mayors, the local governors, the local law enforcement to take care of those cities. The mayor of Seattle is in absolute dereliction of her duties when she allows for a semi-autonomous zone for blocks on end to be set up in her city. I had Mayor Giuliani on, former mayor of New York City, who is a Republican mayor, 
um, who said, I asked him about this, and he said, well, they would have set it up on one day, and that would have been the only day it would have been up because we would have removed it and never allowed it. Once, once you sort of give up your power as the mayor, as the governor, once you say, yeah, people can burn down, city, uh, burn down stores, you can ransack things, you can attack uh, other people on the street, all of these things, you've sort of given up your rights as the elected official. Now, as someone that wants small government, do I like the idea of uh, the National Guard or federal troops or federal officers of, of any level? Do I like the idea of them going into cities? Of course not, but we are still a union. And if we are to be a union, meaning if we are to be 50 states that are cohesive, if the leaders of an individual city and an individual state, so in this case, you know, we can talk about uh, Seattle, the city of Seattle or the city of Portland, um, so Washington or Oregon, if their mayors and their governors will not defend their people and their property, then unfortunately, I think Trump in this case has been left with no choice. And I think that the average person who's not politi per, uh, particularly political, I think they see law and order being restored and I think they're happy for it. But the very short answer, now that I've spoken a bunch, is that from a classically liberal's perspective, you don't really want this, but you also understand that when you talk about limited government, you don't say no government. And that's why I would say classical liberals are not anarchists. And, and that's also why I would say there's a difference between classical liberalism and libertarianism. This is where I think classical liberals generally are a little more realist. And if the local government won't do it, well, then somebody's got to. Do you think, though, that's where sometimes it gets a, a little bit tricky to have these conversations and where it's good with forums like this, where we can elaborate on it? Because if you and I say that we're classical liberal and I work for a classical liberal organisation, the Centre for Independent Studies, and then if you say you are for something like, you know, reluctantly, you are okay with, you know, the National Guard or that coming out, to sort of a casual objector, that can seem almost hypocritical because you, you have to go into quite a lot of detail as you just outlined then to explain your position and why it's actually in line with the philosophy. Yeah, well, that's why I said it was a great question because this is one of the ones where, you know, eventually, you know, we can talk about all of these things as sort of ideas and just sort of intellectual exercises. But I've found that over the last few months as we've been in lockdown and coronavirus and quarantine, that a lot of my ideas, the rubber is meeting the road. Do I really believe these things? And I think a lot of people are thinking about this. You know, if we're going to defund the police, well, then I damn well better, better be able to defend myself, something I can do under the Second Amendment. Um, I think people are thinking about immigration differently. I think people are thinking about all these things differently. So this is a case where, again, if we are to be a union, if we are to be 50 states that have a, that have a collective identity, and I mean collective in the, in the good sense of it, if we are to remain the United States of America, which I believe is a good project and a wonderful experiment, well then if a city and a state is failing in its duty, its very basic duty, right? What do what classical liberals want? The very basic duty is to protect life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? So we're not asking the government to do much, but if, the local government will not do that, then I see no choice other than the federal government to do it. I don't love it, but I see no choice around it. Well, we have a question from Diane about the Black Lives Matter movement. And she says, how do we counteract the influence of the Black Lives Matter movement? You counteract it the way you counteract every bad idea. You must stand up and fight for what you believe in. It is as simple as that. 
you know, I, I don't consider myself to be an extraordinary person. I consider myself for some reason to be somebody that says what he thinks. That really is it. And somehow when I started doing that, you know, six or seven years ago, I guess there was a lack of it and people started paying attention. And then I was able to sit across other people that were doing the same thing and it grew and grew and grew and grew. The mob is preying on the fact that you're afraid of them. I have no doubt that Diane who asked this question is not a racist. What she's talking about here is she doesn't believe that the Black Lives Matter Marxist organization and the ideas that they're proliferating throughout society are a good set of ideas. If you don't stand up against it, no one will. Don't expect, you know, every institution is just a collection of people. That's it. You know, it's like we expect our institute. Well, our institutions will stand up to it. Harvard will obviously stand up to it. A once wonderful liberal institution, but Harvard is crumbling under the ideas of of identity politics and wokeness. So it is. It's the simplest answer. It almost sounds cliche, but in your own life, you must stand up for it, whatever that means. Whether that means Diane talking to your husband about it, even if you disagree, or your kids or your friends posting on Facebook, but don't. Don't just cower because the quieter you are, they view that you're actually fueling them. You're actually giving them the room in the space so that they can continue for you. It's the frog in the slowly boiling pot. A lot of people think, oh, I'll just sit this one out. I won't say anything this time. But what happens is the temperature keeps getting turned up and up and up, and it does not end well for the frog. Uh, we have a, another question on the similar vein of how you are talk to people and change their attitudes. And I'll know, I know you'll like this one, uh, Dave, as a stand-up comedian. So uh, David asks, do you believe that gentle ridicule and humour might be one of the best ways to change people's attitudes? Yes. All right. Let me get into funny mode for a second. Yes, absolutely. Of course, that is how we equalize ourselves. You know, we had a, the great comedian who passed away a couple of years ago, Don Rickles. Don Rickles was known as the great insult comic, and he would walk on stage in Atlantic City and he'd talk about the Indian and the white guy and the black guy and the Jew and the gay guy and the straight guy and the woman. And, the, and he'd make fun of everyone. And by making fun of everybody, everybody equally. He wasn't just bigoted towards one group of people. He made fun of everybody. And what that did was it allowed everybody in the audience to go, whoa, I'm part of this rich tapestry of Americana. It's an absolutely beautiful thing. Now we've gotten to the point where comedians, I mean, I'm, I'm friends with some very, very famous A-list comedians who are literally afraid to say things on stage. They are worried that tapes of theirs from 10 years ago when they were making jokes are gonna ruin their careers. The death of comedy is the death of the mirror. We need that mirror to look back at ourselves, to see what we are as a society. And if every time someone says something that you don't like, or they make a joke that you don't like, you know, a good joke, what does a good joke do? That there's a line of what's acceptable and a good joke gets really close to it, gets really close to it. And it says something true so that you laugh. A laughter is an expression of truth. But every now and again, a comic is going to trip over the line. That's why the line exists. And we can't look to destroy these people. So the, the important thing here is I think for, for those of us that care about the things that we're talking about here, be a little bit better than your opponents. You know, for all the people that would cancel you, if someone says something that's really awful, don't try to cancel them. Don't try to destroy them, get them fired or anything else. Turn the other cheek. It doesn't mean be an endless pushover, but turn the other cheek in a way that will allow a little space for, for humanity, allow a little space for humor. We need it. Do you think though, I mean, there, there might be a, a few comedians that you know who are afraid to speak up for various reasons. But I mean, when I when I look at 
you know, social media or YouTube, I see Joe Rogan interviewing Bill Burr or Bill Maher and, you know, these are these go for hours and they're, they're certainly uh, don't seem like they're holding back and that sort of thing. So do you, do you think in a way it's actually just the, the platforms have shifted and if you if you certainly want a more outrageous comedy or you know comedy for your taste you you can find it i mean it's to me it seems to be everywhere yeah well that's the beauty of the internet right there's been a a great uh democratization of ideas and voices so it's like you know back in the old days every every comedian wanted an hbo special the the gold standard was could you get an hbo special well, now there's Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and YouTube and a gajillion other things, and you can self-produce it and you can get, you know, sell out a comedy club of 100 people and tape it yourself and sell that on your website. That, that's a beautiful thing. Um, but at the same time, people are afraid. I mean, it, it's the same thing that, that your audience members may be afraid if, if their boss found out what their political beliefs are. Comics, and it's not just comics, by the way, it's writers, it's anyone that does anything in the arts is particularly afraid that they will be destroyed right now and that's the same thing that, you know, the person who's an accountant or a plumber or a dentist, they're all afraid of the same thing. And, and that's why we have to fight it because it's affecting all of us, I think, in ways that, that we don't even quite understand at the moment. Is it, is it difficult though, because this is something I hear a lot as people say, you know, we need to, we need to speak up and we need to fight this and we need to speak out against the mob. And obviously I agree with that, but there's a, there's a part as well that when, when people are talking about their their livelihoods, their job, they're worried if they say something or post something on social media, they'll be out of a job. That's that's not a small concern. So like, what would you say to someone? It's like, look, if I speak up, I'm, I might lose my job. And then, you know, how do I feed my family or, or put a roof over my head? What would you say to that? It's an incredibly difficult question to answer because we all have different uh, pressures in our lives. You might, if, you, if you've got a couple bucks in the bank and you're uh, single, let's say, or you're well off, you might be more willing to take risks than a person who's married with two young kids who's going paycheck to paycheck. So when I, when I say these things, I understand, of course. I mean, anyone that's an individualist, of course, you understand. All of us have different thresholds for what fighting the mob is. All of us have different financial thresholds, personal thresholds. Some of us are wired. To, to take in stress more. Some of us can let more of it, you know, roll off your back. Um, so everyone has to make a decision that's right from that, for them. What I would say though, to generally speaking, the person that is at work and is afraid to let their coworkers know what they think, think about what you'll feel like in five years. Let's say you just say, I have my reasons. I'm not going to say what I think. No one will know what I think. Now, it's ironic because the other people never stop to think, that they might get fired, right? If you're, if you're a woke lefty, you can go into any office, you can say whatever you want, you can call half the people racist and you're good to go. But for anyone listening to this, if you're not saying what you think right now, do you think it's gonna be better or worse in five years? Everyone knows it'll be worse. So it really is on you one way or another. It's not an easy answer, but that simply is the truth. Speaking of someone who is uh, currently out of a job, we have a question from Cassie about Barry Weiss. It says, would you agree that Barry Weiss was initially supportive and happy to join in cancel culture, attacks on conservatives, etc., and that she only stepped up when the mob came for her? This is a tough one, Cassie. I mean, it's a tough one for me personally because um, Barry, in the original article that put the intellectual dark web on the map, uh, the article in the New York Times, which Barry wrote a couple of years ago, 
I kept warning her before the article was printed that the real threat is the left. The real people who will come fire her and go after me and everybody else, that these are the lefties. And they, she kept wanting to make it about the scary people on the right. And I kept saying, that's not the people that are coming for you. Now, obviously I've been proven correct in all of this. Um, Barry called me the day after, I don't think I've said this publicly before, but since she asked me a direct question, I'll give a direct answer. Barry called me the day after the article was printed and she was crying because she said the editors changed it and she had to throw me under the bus um, because I'm too friendly with people on the right. So again, this gets to what your earlier question was about the Harper's thing. It's like all of these liberals, they've sat there quietly while, while conservatives have been attacked and destroyed and had their lives wrecked. And now they're waking up now that it's coming for them. So I would say it's better late than never. And I hope that they will get more forceful and stand up for conservatives. But I, I fear that that's not what's gonna happen here. I fear that for the academic set of people that signed that Harper's letter and, and the New York Times people, so I would include Barry in this, that what they really fear more than anything else is being called conservative or thought of as conservative. And the counter to that that I would say, and I've been saying this for the last couple of years, is that defending my liberal principles is becoming a conservative position. And until the liberals, the good liberals, realize that we can make alliances on the right with conservatives who we may have differences on about abortion or taxes or whatever it might be, but they're not the ones that are gonna come for our schools and our livelihoods. Uh, until they can make that decision, I think the decimation of the last liberals is gonna continue. On the last liberals, we have a question from Mike about political labels. And he says, one of the difficulties in discussing our political ideals is that we need to put a label on everything, liberalism, libertarianism, what benefit does it generate to discriminate? So this is a great question. I, I address this a little bit in my book. You know, one of the things about labels is we need certain labels sometimes to be able to have conversation in a, in a functional way. So when I say liberals, I don't mean every single person that subscribes to the ideas of liberalism. If I say the lefties, I don't mean every single lefty, but we need some blanket terms that are sort of catch-alls for most of the people that subscribe to a certain set of ideas. But of course, if you were to say, uh, do classical liberals, although I think we are a unique set in this because I think classical liberals better than any other lens, and I do go into this quite extensively in the book, I think classical liberalism offers you the widest lens to look at the world. Uh, you're, you're, you wanna fight for modernity, yet you respect tradition. Uh, you want to fight for the individual, yet you realize that some level of government is necessary. I think that lens allows you to, to see the world not, as, it is, not as, it is, as you want it to be, but as it is. And I think that's a beautiful thing. So as far as labels specifically, we need them because otherwise it would be almost impossible to have conversations because we need some sort of shorthand to be able to describe a certain set of people that, that subscribe to a certain set of ideas. Even, even with this shorthand, do you think it's become important or perhaps even more important to define what you mean. I mean, in a liberal in America is sometimes used pejoratively. In Australia, we have the Liberal Party, which is the conservative, typically the conservative right side of politics. We're classical liberals. So do you, do you think that we, there needs to be more work on actually defining these terms? Yeah, you know, I've spent a lot of my career trying to define these terms. And I can tell you that when I saw you in Australia, which was about two years ago, um, that I had been to a bunch of different countries all over the map with Jordan. 
And I realized, wow, when they th say liberal here, they mean conservative. And when they say conservative, they mean liberal and, and every other version of it. I would say maybe if, if people are getting too hung up on the terms because not everyone is a political beast, the, the most simple way to view the world right now, if you just need a very simple way to view the world, although I think it's quite a good way actually, is you're either authoritarian or you're libertarian. And by that, I mean you either believe that the state is somehow inherently good and can give goodness throughout, provide goodness throughout, or you're libertarian. It doesn't mean you're a card-carrying member of the Libertarian Party, but you believe in individual liberty and that people themselves can figure out what's right for them, and then they can hopefully build a local community and grow up from there that's better, that, that's more sensible and more uh, in line with their beliefs. So I think that really that's sort of the bumper sticker one. If you need a very simple way, when you're talking to somebody, and they're telling you something about whatever it might be, in your mind, you should say, okay, are they authoritarian in their thinking? Meaning that there's some other thing out there that should control us, or are they libertarian in their thinking? Meaning that we are the ones should make the decisions for ourselves. Well, we have a, a question from Ben on debate and thinking, and he says, is people's biggest mistake assuming that people are willing and capable of critical objective thinking? <laughs> this is a good one because I think we're seeing more and more of this. So I think for many, many years, um, from an American context, we had you know people on the right and people on the left, and we had uh, conservatives and we had liberals and Democrats and Republicans. And for the most part, they could have a conversation with each other. They really could. They, they would sort of accept that these are the parameters of what a functioning society can have. And we'll debate abortion, we will debate taxes, we'll debate states' rights and foreign policy and the rest of it. And that we can walk away and for the most part, we can accept that, all right, that person thinks something differently than me, but you know, in America, we've got 350 million people and you know, I'm not gonna force everybody to believe what I believe. I think what has shifted here, and this is probably what Ben is seeing, is that as the left has become more hysterical, as wokeness has sort of taken leftism, as the rise of the young democratic socialists who are just socialists, the AOCs, the Ilhan Omars, the Bernie Sanders crew, as they've gained power, well, they think that everyone who goes against them is evil. They think that we're all bigots and racists and homophobes and all those things. Well, there, there's almost no way to have a conversation with someone like that. I mean, if someone walked up to you and, and their first thing was to say you're racist, well, you're going to have a very different conversation with them than if the first thing they said to you was, you know, I disagree with your feelings about uh, taxes. Let's have a conversation about it. So this is what the left has wrought, unfortunately, these last few years of telling us how horrible America is, how horrible capitalism is, how horrible uh, Western society is, and how we're all racists and bigots. They've left us with a situation where a lot of their base now believes that if you don't believe what they believe, and the second they believe it, the second they believe it, you gotta believe it, well, then you're all these awful things. So they don't even believe in conversation. That's making it much harder, I think, for say people like us to reach across the aisle. Because if you reach across the aisle and someone says, no, you're a Nazi, well, where do you go with that? There, there's no perfect answer to this one. How do you think it's going to affect uh politics. I mean, you're going to have a presidential election this year. Do you think that the Black Lives Matter movement, cancel culture, or does it, does it help one side over the other? Well, conventional thinking is that this is somehow helping Biden because we've sort of brought these issues to the front and people are thinking about racism more and that will somehow 
help the Democrats. Uh, I don't see that at all, frankly. I mean, I, I think when you see this, this out of control violence and attacking property and attacking people and attacking federal buildings and all of these things, and then you see Trump really just calling for law and order. And as we talked about before, if you don't want federal troops in there, that's one thing, or you don't want the National Guard in there, that's fine. But if it is restoring law and, law and order, I think the average person says, you know what, we may have some problems in the United States, but I certainly believe in law and order more than I believe in chaos. And the chaos that the Black Lives Matter and Antifa crowd are ushering in, in many ways is just doing the dirty work of the Democratic Party. So my gut feeling at the moment, and now we're, look, we're three months out of the election, anything can happen. We also are in the midst of a pandemic and, and everything else. My gut feeling is the average person watching this, uh, I think is breaking to the right. I think they're breaking more, if, if this is just about Biden and Trump, I think they're breaking more towards Trump. They're saying, hey, listen, Trump may be orange, he may be loud, he may tweet a lot that I don't like and all that stuff, but I think he loves America and I think he wants law and order and all of those things. And I think that they're gonna, I think a certain set of people are probably gonna just hold their nose and, and vote for him. I don't see how this helps the Democrats really. I think the base is rabid and out of control and Biden can't stop them. You just uh, mentioned Trump's tweets then. You're, you're obviously on Twitter yourself and you're, you're on YouTube and all these other platforms. How do you see social media playing into this? Does it, this exacerbate tensions or is there more of a, a trade-off in that it allows people like you and others to have a platform and a voice that they probably wouldn't otherwise have? Yeah, well, look, the, the second part of the question is, of course, of course, YouTube has allowed me and you and, and millions of other people to get their voice out there. You know, if you're just, you know, nobody that's uh, political in any real way, but you just one day have a funny thought or a meme or you're a video editor or even a one line tweet that's brilliant. Well, millions of people might see that an hour later, 10 minutes later. It's possible. That is an incredible thing. The idea that our minds could just put forth something that someone across the world could hear instantaneously. It's absolutely incredible. So that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And I can't, I can't sit here and say that these things are all horrible because I've, I've made my living on them. I've been able to share my opinions and, and travel the world. So it's, it's wonderful in that regard. Uh, what comes with that, though, is that we have given a tremendous amount of power to big tech. There are four or five giant companies that own a tremendous amount of information on us that control the pipes and control our ability to communicate with each other. And this is a problem for sure. This is an absolute problem. Uh, I personally wish that we had more competition within that. In the midst of this, I started my own tech company, locals.com, and we're, we're building, uh, we're giving creators tools to build their own independent businesses. So I would welcome anybody to check that out. Um, but I think one thing that Trump's done fairly well is in the last month or so, uh, he did sign an executive action, which was on uh, Section 230. He stripped some protections from big tech. So if big tech is going to act, and when I say big tech, I mean Twitter and uh, Facebook and, and YouTube, if they're going to act as publishers, meaning if they're going to decide what can be on their platforms, then they lose certain legal protections because they've said that they're just platforms, they're neutral platforms, but we know that they don't act like that because they shadow ban and they de-boost and a series of other algorithmic manipulations. So if they're going to behave that way, then they're going to lose some protection. So I think Trump's instinct 
was right on that. And by the way, well, people will say, well, wait a minute, Dave, is that government intervention? And I thought you don't want government intervention. I would say in this case, it's not government intervention because he didn't call for government regulators to be sent in to Google. What he said is we're stripping you of some of your legal protections to allow the market to operate properly. So in that regard, I, I think it's a good move. If, if you think that's a good move, would you draw the line at regulation though? Because I have heard some people argue saying that, you know, we have to come in and break up these companies or have regulation. Is that, is that too far for you? I, this is where Tucker Carlson and I have had this discussion a few times on his show. I, I personally don't believe it, that regulation is the answer. I don't think that you take big tech and combine it with big government and somehow think that that's going to solve our problems. I think you just have a bigger problem. Big, big. Now we got really big, right? So I understand the inclination to do that. And I understand that competition can't always solve everything. But, you know, David beat Goliath, right? I mean, the, the little guy can beat the big guy. I think these companies in many ways, no company lives forever, right? I mean, we've had giant companies of the past that, that don't exist anymore. And I think that is what will happen here eventually, especially because they've allowed social justice to infect their companies. So they will no longer hire the best of the best programmers. They're gonna hire programmers based on skin color and gender and sexuality. Well, over time, you will degrade your services because of that. And some other really clever, um, uh, innovator will hire based on skill set. And I can assure you of this, locals.com, we hire based on skills, not based on gender or on skin color. So we're hiring some seriously good people. If you happen to be black or gay, I guess that's good. But frankly, I don't care. If you're white and you know how to program, that's great. And if you're black, if you know how to program, that's great. So I don't like the idea that government regulators, I mean, you think about an average middle management government employee, that they're going to send this guy into Google and he's going to sit down with the algorithm people and have any idea on how to regulate this thing. It's just not realist. So I would prefer competition wherever possible. But I understand the inkling for it. I really do. So we, we have a question from Brad about social media, and it might also dovetail into a mental health announcement in that he, he says that every, every August, you, Dave, uh, take a break from social media and it's a good idea to get off that vicious cycle. Can you just talk about that for a minute? I'm leaving on Friday. I believe Friday is uh, July 31st, and then I go off the grid for one whole month. I will not have a phone. We lock my phone in a safe. I will not have television. I will not watch the news. I will not use any electronic device. I don't even go to the gym because if you go to the gym, you know, they've got, well, now you can't even go to the gym because of lockdown, but you know, they've got televisions everywhere. Um, but what I plan on doing is really focusing on my diet, focusing on working out, uh, focusing on some mental health and relaxing and letting my mind and body rejuvenate. We are putting up, I taped a lot of shows in July. So we're putting up plenty of shows in August for people that don't want to be off the grid. But I would encourage everyone uh, to try this at some level. I understand for some people you, you have to have a phone because of emergency calls or this or that, but delete some of the social media apps. Take some time. August is a good time to do it. This will be the fourth year that I'm doing it. And this year is particularly crazy, obviously, because not only do we have a pandemic that the laws and regulations seem to be changing every day, but we've got these protests and riots. The Republican convention, which now I suppose will be virtual, will be at the end of August. Biden's going to announce his VP, I think, sometime in August. So I'm going to miss a lot this year. And a lot of people are saying, well, Dave, you can't do it this year because this is crazy. But, but this is exactly why I do do it. And I'll come back 
feeling rejuvenated and with a fresh perspective in September. So if you can't do a month, you could try a week. September is a good time to try a week. Uh, August is a good time to try a week. If you can't do a week, you know, you could try weekends. Everyone could take a Saturday off. Everyone could take a Sunday off social media and just, just be whatever that means to you. Uh, be present. And uh, I don't think that our brains evolved to be endlessly slammed with everybody else's thoughts all the time. And that's what we live in. We live in a world where every day you're subjected to the thoughts of people all over the world, endlessly hating and loving and making you laugh and making you cry. And I think that's actually a recipe for a certain level of craziness that we all are stuck in right now. And that's why I do it. And I look forward to uh, being away for a bit and coming back refreshed in September. Do you think there's also a, a problem with that Politics now seems to be in everything. So where, you know, it used to be you could just watch a, a, a football game or a basketball game or whatever your sport is and you're just watching that form of entertainment or, you know, you just go to the shop and buy a tub of ice cream or something like that. But now everything seems to have a political message or political spin to it. Do you think that contributes to the the people just, you know, getting over it and thinking it's vicious because you can't get away from politics these days? It's a great question. I, this is one of the issues I'm most concerned about. I've been talking about this a lot for the last year. We don't have any space to be people anymore. You used to be able to go to a sports event and it wasn't about politics the whole time. Yeah, they do the national anthem at the beginning. Um, you know, we'd ha you might, there might be some show of patriotism or not. Um, and that would be it. And um, that's not to say that athletes can't say what they think. I, I think they, of course, I believe that they should be able to say what they think. But the idea that this season, the NBA, the National Basketball Association, is going to have the words Black Lives Matter painted on the court. Well, that's a political organization. I, for one, I'm not going to watch the NBA this season. I'm not calling for a boycott. I'm just saying what I personally am doing. I love basketball. Absolutely love basketball. And you know what I do? When I'm doing cardio, I watch old basketball games from the 1980s and 1990s. I watch Michael Jordan and Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, and I find that more entertaining. And it's, it's about sports. It's not about politics. But yes, as politics leaks into all of our sporting events, you know, if you open up Netflix, they first tell you a message about Black Lives Matter. You open up Uber Eats, it tells you where black uh, businesses uh, to, to order from these black businesses. They all mean well, but they're, they're unearthing something that is endlessly race focused. And the experiment of a free society that America has done so well is that we are not based uh, solely on, our, the, on those characteristics. We're based on our abilities and our creativity and our thoughts as individuals. And they're really trying to upend all of that. So I am worried that everything's become political. And, and just one other thing on this, you know, if most of your audience obviously is within the classical liberal framework, well, you wouldn't want everything to be political, of course. The whole point of classical liberalism is that the government will be so small and only do the essential things to keep everything tied together, to make sure we never go too far off the tracks. Once government is everywhere, we've already lost in a weird way. And that's why the socialists and the Marxists, their answer for everything is government. That's very dangerous because that's about control. And, and I'm not that interested in controlling people. If we've all already gone off the tracks, as you just said, is there a, a possible way back? I mean, we have a, a question from Stanton that's particularly about universities and asks what can be done here. I'll just add what, if anything, can be done about these problems you've been outlining. 
Almost nothing. I would say at the university level, almost every university in the United States at this point has been completely infected. And the ones that haven't been completely infected have, have the beginnings of the infection. And wokeness is an infection. It is a virus of the mind. What is a virus? A virus is something that's very easy to catch and very hard to get rid of. Coronavirus, it's very easy to catch it. That's why we're taking precautions. And it's hard to get rid of it. It could potentially kill you depending on you know, your age and uh, several other factors. That's what wokeism is. Once it's in the system, meaning once it's in the university system, every university that it gets into, it destroys. Every media institution that it gets into, it destroys. We are in a time of watching institutions collapse. I don't think there's anything we can do to save higher ed. Are there some universities that will survive, some more uh, religious or conservative ones? Yeah, there will be a few. But I would say the silver lining to that is that if you are an 18 year old, you're a 17 year old, you're watching this video right now, don't think that you have to go into massive debt to get a college education that's not gonna do much for you. What you can do is learn an awful lot on YouTube. You can learn an awful lot on podcasts. It's not perfect, but you can, if you really care about education and a plurality of opinion and a diverse set of views, you can find ways to get it online. Now, there's problems even with that because I think one of the things that college is about isn't just the education, but it's the four years of learning to socialize, learning to live with other people your age without your parents and a series of other things. So I think we still have to deal with that sort of stuff. And I think there's some creative ways that that can be done. Um, but I don't think the universities can be saved. Every time I meet a young person these days that says to me, should I go to college or not? I say, I don't know, do you, do you wanna walk out of college with say $100,000 in debt and a degree that maybe won't get you the job? Or have you thought about your life seriously? And do you have a sense of maybe what you wanna do? And if you do, well then start contacting some people and, and be an intern for a little while. And even if they don't pay you, although I pay my interns, even if they don't pay you, you'll learn some skills. And by not paying you, you still won't be in $60,000 or $100,000 debt. You know, you, you get a part-time job, figure it out. I, I, so I, I'm hopeful in that figure out alternative means as the institutions crumble. Well, if the uh, higher education institution is going to crumble, do you think mainstream media is not far behind that? Oh yeah, well, they're crumbling already. I mean, they're, they're in the end. And in many ways, I think they're over. You know, the New York Times has been unmasked. We all know what it is at this point. CNN has been unmasked. Uh, I'm sure you guys have versions of this in Australia. Actually, one of my, one of my favorite Australian pundits is Rita Panahi, who I think is on Sky News over there in Australia. And, and she's what I would say a wonderful uh, classical liberal thinker. I did her show when I was in Australia. So I'm sure you guys have your, your people that are fighting it, of course. But I think mainstream media is collapsing. And, and by the way, I'm not someone that, that enjoys the collapse for the sake of the collapse. I, I think we do as a functioning society, we need institutions. We need things that can last for generations because that allows us to be connected to the past and not think that we can solve everything in the future. That's, that's the truth, that's, that's a long-term truth. But unfortunately, these things have been unmasked. CNN and the New York Times and the rest of it, they've been unmasked. They're activist organizations. And do they deserve to crumble now? They do. How would you counter them? Because a, a counter argument to that would be, well, you know, there's social media and YouTube and platforms like that are fantastic, but there's also a lot of misinformation, conspiracy theories, all that sort of thing. Don't you need those strong institutions to make sure the correct information is getting out there? 
Yeah, well, that's why I'm saying I'm not someone that relishes in the destruction because we do need something for some sort of national unity, right? If we can no longer agree on what is true, if everyone is to siphon off into their own YouTube world, their own podcast world of what is true, well, then what actually does bring us together? That, that is a great question. I don't know that there's any really good answers for that. The best I can give you is that as we watch these institutions fail, um, if you put it on yourself to try to take information from different sources and figure out what is true, not just believe something because a headline says it and not just believe something because it already fits your narrative, but if you truly take in a multitude of sources to figure out what is true, it's harder work, it's kind of annoying. Other people, you know, people have lives and jobs and kids and all sorts and hobbies and they don't wanna do all this, but it's on you in this weird time that we're in. But I think that when we get past this weird time, whatever that means, whether that's a year from now or a few years from now, I suspect it's probably about five years from now, we will start building newer institutions that hopefully will have dealt with some of these problems and we'll have a better decentralized internet. You know, I think, I think, I guess the, the simple answer is you should, you shouldn't trust institutions just because they were thought of as good 20 years ago. It's on you to figure out who you trust and why you trust them. Uh, it's on you. So I think on that, it is a perfect note to end on the idea of personal responsibility. Your uh, friend and traveling partner, Jordan Peterson, would be proud of that. I'm Monica Wilkie, a policy analyst at the CIS. Thank you, everyone, for watching. And thank you once again, Dave Rubin, for being here. My pleasure. For decades, the Centre for Independent Studies has been a fiercely independent voice, working tirelessly to produce evidence-based public policy. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our cause. Check out the links on screen now to find out how you can get involved with the Centre for Independent Studies. And remember to like this video, subscribe to our channel, and hit that notification bell so you can be kept up to date with all the CIS content.